0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette. This is the March 3rd, Friday edition. as brought to you on the morning of Saturday, March 4th. Your reader today will be Bobby Bailey. And without further ado, here is Bobby Bailey to read the Mason City Globe Gazette. Bobby, take it away. And continuing with the front page uh, coverage, second bill would allow guns in school work parking lots. And this is... uh, According to Jared Strong of Iowa Capital Dispatch, new legislation that would allow people to have guns and ammunition in their vehicles at schools, colleges, prisons, and their workplaces received preliminary approval from an Iowa Senate subcommittee on Wednesday. A similar bill in the Iowa House also was advanced by a subcommittee last week and appears to have broad support for passage. There's no secret that the House and this are the alignment," said Senator Jason Schultz, a Schleswig Republican who led the subcommittee meeting Wednesday. Senate Study Bill 1168 would make it permissible by law to have guns and vehicles in places that might be currently off-limits for most people. That includes the parking lots of schools for people who are licensed to carry a firearm, who are, dro- who are dropping off or picking up students or employees, or who have other business at the schools. The parking lots of workplaces, jails, prisons, and the- if the gun is hidden inside a locked vehicle. The parking lots of universities and community colleges, if the gun is hidden. Lawmakers say it said they might amend that to require the vehicle to be locked. The bill would also allow retired peace officers to carry weapons on school grounds and would enable schools to authorize someone to have a gun inside a school vehicle that transports students. Senator Tony Bisignano, Democrat of Des Moines, opposed the bill because it has too many unrelated provisions. He said he supports people having weapons in their vehicles at workplaces, but perhaps not at some of the other places. It's really hard to swallow for those of us that aren't just complete enthusiasts that everybody should have a gun everywhere, he said. Brad Hartkoff of the Iowa Association of Business and Industry said the private employers deserve the choice of whether to allow firearms on their properties. I'm sure that we have many members who allow guns on the shop floor or guns in the parking lot, he said, and we support their right to do that. We think that's perfectly fine, but we support it because they're the ones deciding whether or not they want to do that. Carol Ann Jensen, who represents the Board of Regents and the state's universities, said it's problematic to allow weapons in parking lots near the University of Iowa hospitals, dorms, and stadiums. She said, I go to a lot of Iowa State games. We have just as many people outside in the parking lot that are inside the stadium, so alcohol firearms are not a good mix. The bill has a provision to prevent insurance companies from denying property or casualty coverage to schools based on the allowance of firearms on school property or in school vehicles, which insurance industry representatives opposed. When a company is mandated to take on risk— An insurance company may choose to completely exit an entire market, said Brittany Lumley of the Iowa Insurance Institute, and the disruption of this magnitude could have a very profound impact on the stability of the state's economy. The bill also gives immunity to employees against lawsuits that might stem from an altercation with a firearm owned by the employer or employee. The bill is on the Senate Judiciary Committee agenda for Thursday. It, it needs a committee approval under legislative rules to remain eligible for debate after this week's funnel deadline. And the last story on the front page, a Teen Work Bill Heads to House Vote. This is a credit to Tom Barton of the Globe Gazette, Des Moines Bureau. Iowa teens could work longer hours and more jobs, including those formerly off-limits as being hazardous, and serve alcohol under a controversial bill advanced Wednesday by House Republicans. House Study Bill 134 passed out of the full House Commerce Committee on a party-line vote, with, Democratic, with Democrats opposed, clearing a Friday legislative deadline and making it eligible for a House floor vote. The legislation, among other provisions, would let teens as young as 14 to request a waiver from the directors of the state workforce and education agencies to work as apprentices in factories, mines, construction sites, and warehouses, among others, as part of a work-based learning programs. Granting a waiver would require adequate supervision, training, and safety precautions, and and that the terms and conditions of the proposed employment, not interfere with the health, well-being, or schooling of the minor enrolled in the work-based learning program, registered apprenticeship, or career and technical education program. House Republicans amended the bill by striking a provision that would have shielded businesses from civil liability if a youth worker is sickened, injured, or killed on the job. The provision drew national controversy with critics saying the proposal is dangerous and would subject child workers to hazardous environments and allow corporations already profiting from widespread widespread use of child legal, illegal child labor to legalize their exploitation. New language states imp- – New language in the bill states employers are only immune from child civil liability if a student participating in a work based learning program is killed or injured driving to or from the work site, and provides an exception if the student is acting within the scope. Of the student's employment at the direction of the business. The amendment also makes technical changes and clarifies that children as young as 14 may work in industrial freezers and meat coolers, labeling, weighing, pricing, and stocking, provided they are uh, separate from where meat is prepared. Children as young as 14 also would not be allowed to work around dry cleaning chemicals. At 15, they would be able to work as lifeguards and swimming instructors, perform light assembly line work as long as they're away from the machinery, and after obtaining a waiver from state officials, unload and unload up to 50 pounds of products from vehicles and store shelves with a waiver, depending on the strength and ability of the 15-year-old. Republicans said the bills would help businesses find workers in a tight labor market and to help young Iowans become more engaged in work. Committee Chair and Piosta Republican Representative Shannon Lundgren said the bill will allow children to go out and explore new opportunities. Representative Dave Dio, Republican from Nevada, the bill's manager, argued concerns raised about putting children in harm's way were overblown and that the measure is aimed at updating an old law with reasonable standards reflective of current practice. He said, We have 16-year-olds welding at John Deere. Dio said. So this is the type of program we're currently doing. This law is not going to change that. It just broadens the language to make sure that all types of programs that we do right now for youth training are actually allowed and that it actually has the oversight through Iowa Workforce Development and the Iowa Department of Education close quote. Iowa chapters of employer lobby groups representing small businesses, home builders, and hotels and restaurants back the the proposals. Democrats and labor unions contend the measures weaken child labor protection. Having it in the classroom creates a more structured, safe environment than opening it up to work sites, Representative Megan Siranis of Des Moines said, allowing waivers for work-based learning programs. Srivanas, too, noted the proposed changes also directly contradict federal labor law and questioned whether Iowa employers would be subject to fines. Federal rules prohibit 14- and 15-year-olds from working past 9 p.m. in the summer and 7 p.m. during the school year. The bill would extend that two hours to 11 p.m. and 9 p.m., respectively. Dio argued three states bordering Iowa have made similar changes and have yet to be fined. The proposal also would allow 16- and 17-year-olds to serve alcohol with written permission of a parent. Democrats objected to the provision and said no other state allows a 16-year-old to serve alcohol unsupervised. Maine allows workers 17 years or older to sell and serve alcoholic beverages when a person at least 21 years of age is present in a supervisory capacity. Democrats said 16- and 17-year-olds generally lack the maturity to resist pressure from friends and others to serve someone underage and worked about and worried about subjecting minors to sexual harassment and assault. Wherever there is alcohol, there is going to be sexual innuendo and touching and unwanted advances, said Rep. Dave Jacoby of Coralville. Lundgren bristled at the comments, stating, Women, unfortunately, are sexually assaulted in doctor's offices, in grocery store parking lots, in shopping malls. I guarantee the way I run my business and probably the way 95% of our bars and restaurants in the state of Iowa are very conscientious with these issues, she said. And to make an assumption that any time alcohol being consumed, uh, this this is going to happen is really a slap in the face to those that work in this industry and that work very hard in this industry. Lundgren and her family own a bar and grill. One of the benefits of allowing 16- and 17-year-olds to serve alcohol is that if you are a small family business, that our kids can do a few more things to help our business grow, she said, and we have to answer that as well. Lundgren, though, said she had concerns about having minors work in some of the bars in my district, and the cops know which ones they are. Dio suggested inserting language to limiting sixteen and seventeen year olds to serving or selling alcohol in restaurants and not in taverns. There's still a good chance there will be amendment and we there will be an amendment, and we still don't know if the Senate is on board with everything here, he said. And moving to page three, the headline says Nursing Home Executive gets rare public sanction. This is credited to Clark Kaufman of the Iowa Capitol Dispatch. For only the third time in six years, state regulators have publicly sanctioned an Iowa nursing home administrator. The administrator, accused of theft, has been issued a warning by the Iowa Board of Nursing Home Administrators. Her license to manage nursing homes in Iowa maintains unrestricted. According to the board, Deanna Coller of Elgin was serving as the administrator of Hillcrest Living Campus in Sumner at some unspecified point in the past when she used a facility credit card to make what the board calls personal purchases unrelated to the facility. The board has not disclosed what those purchases were, where they were made, or their total value. To resolve the dis- disciplinary charge of misappropriating resident or facility funds, Coller agreed to a settlement agreement with the Board. That agreement calls for Collar to pay a $500 civil penalty and accept a warning stating that future violations may result in disciplinary action. She must also complete a one-day course in professional boundaries and ethics and complete six additional hours of instruction in either ethics or or financial administration. Caller said Wednesday she agreed to the settlement only because the board indicated she would could be charged with additional violations if she contested the misappropriation charge. She said the board also refused to share details of the alleged purchases with her. When I asked for more information, I was told that I would have to dispute it before they would give me more information. And if I did that, there could possibly be more charges made against me, Collar said. She added that while she didn't see any details in writing, it was suggested to her that the purchases were for food. At that time, we would buy pizzas for the staff, she said. It was during COVID and during Christmas time when we'd have to have a lot of snacks brought in. She said her employer at the time never raised an issue with her spending, and all of her credit card purchases were approved by her supervisor. Collar is currently the administrator of the Great River Care Center in McGregor. Since January of 2017, the Iowa Board of Nursing Home Administrators has taken public action in very few disciplinary cases in those 6 years it has publicly sanctioned only two administrators in addition to collar one for giving false information to the board and one for falsely claiming to be managing a facility where she, he wasn't physically located In recent years, however, the state's own inspectors, investigators, and administrative law judges have cited an array of violations attributed directly to nursing home administrators, none of whom have been publicly sanctioned by the Board of Nursing Home Administrators. The first is harassment and neglect. The administrator at Sigourney's Windsor Place Senior Living Campus allegedly tried to badger a male resident into leaving the state leaving late last year and then had the staff dump the man's belongings outside to force forcibly evict him according to state inspectors the same administrator was accused of ignoring a female resident's pleas to go to the hospital resulting in the woman being left in a vegetative state abuse At Coridan Specialty Care last year, state inspectors and Iowa Board of Nursing investigators alleged a resident had been tied to a chair with a bedsheet by the staff. A photo was taken by one of the home's employees showing the woman tied to the chair. In talking to the state inspectors, the administrator allegedly acknowledged the worker who took the photo was asked to delete it, adding that she didn't keep a copy as evidence. Falsified Records Last year, the Board of Nursing alleged that Michelle Hansen of Keokuk, while working at an unspecified healthcare facility as a licensed administrator, submitted falsified records to her employer indicating she has received the required annual vaccine for influenza. Retaliation. Last year, a caregiver of the Aspire of Perry Nursing Home alleged she was fired by the administrator for speaking to an investigator about conditions there. An administrative law judge concluded that the fired worker had done nothing wrong and the administrator had, quote, engaged in a pattern of unprofessional belligerent and offensive conduct, close quote. Patient dumping. In 2020, the administrator at Pearl Valley Rehabilitation and Nursing discharged a male resident of the home of a hospital emergency room with no plans for his future care, according to inspectors. An administrative law judge later ruled the home had dumped the man at the hospital during the pandemic without any plan for his future housing and care. Pearl Valley attempted to get the man out of its facility by way of a hospital ER, knowing that he would eventually be discharged and homeless. Abuse and Neglect Last summer, the administrator at Dubuque Specialty Care implemented a no-smoking policy that prompted a male resident to wheel himself outside, saying he was leaving. The staff later told state inspectors that the man sat outside in a wheelchair until 4 a.m. the next day, eventually calling a taxi service, falling, and being taken to a hospital for treatment. Employees told inspectors the administrator had barred them from letting the man back inside. The administrator allegedly told inspectors that technically the man had discharged himself from the facility, so we were not responsible. Death At Centerville Specialty Care in Appanoose County last summer, state officials cited the home for failing to comply with COVID-19 mitigation requirements and contributing to the resident's death. The administrator of the home allegedly told inspectors she was responsible for monitoring COVID-19 tests, but was instead taking the staff's word that they were being tested, adding that the job was too overwhelming for her. The board should have public representatives. By law, the nine-member Iowa Board of Nursing Home Administrators must include two members of the general public to represent the interests of citizens, plus three licensed health care professionals and four nursing home administrators. But aside from a brief period last year, the board appears to have been operating for years with no public representatives who aren't, who aren't also licensed professionals. Board member Michael Schuler of Epworth a licensed uh, mental health counselor is listed in some state records as the board's only public representative while in others he's listed as one of the board's <clears throat> licensed health professionals. Kimberly Hemson a Catholic school administrator was recently appointed to the board as a public representative but she says she has been licensed for, she has been a licensed first responder for the last 30 years. Last year, Devon Wood of Taylor County was appointed to the board as a public representative. However, she appears to have attended only one board meeting before resigning last spring. She is now a Republican state lawmaker representing House District 17. Prior to Wood's brief stint on the board, the last members designated as representatives of the public were Jill Barr, who is an outreach navigator at a behavioral health center in Spencer, and Kay Fisk, who was a lobbyist for Horizons, a family alliance before her recent retirement. Their terms on the board ended almost two years ago, in April of 2021. Wood and Schuler did not acknowledge numerous calls and messages from the Iowa Capital Dispatch over the past five weeks. And moving to some nation, nation and world news, uh, Trump can face riot lawsuits. This is a uh, credit to the Associated Press. Injured Capitol Police officers and Democratic lawmakers can sue former President Donald Trump over the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, the Justice Department said Thursday in a federal court case testing Trump's legal vulnerability and the limits of executive power. Though a presidential, though a president enjoys broad legal latitude to communicate to the public on matters of concern, the department wrote that no part of a president's official responsibilities includes the incitement of imminent private violence. By definition, such conduct plainly falls outside of the president's constitutional and statutory duties." Lawyers with the Justice Department's civil defense filed the brief and it has no bearing on the separate criminal investigations by a department special counsel into whether Trump can be criminally charged over efforts to undo President Joe Biden's victory in the 2020 presidential election ahead of the Capitol riot. The lawyers noted that they are not taking a position on potential criminal liability for Trump or anyone else. The Justice Department lawyers also wrote, that they take no view on a lower court judge's conclusion that those who sued Trump have plausibly alleged that his speech caused the riot. Nevertheless, the department wrote that an appeals court should reject Trump's claim of absolute immunity. An email seeking comment was sent to an attorney for Trump on Thursday. Trump's lawyers have argued he was acting within his official rights and had no intention to spark violence when he called on thousands of supporters to march to the Capitol and fight like hell before the riot erupted. It is among many legal woes facing Trump as he makes another bid for the White House in 2024. And jumping over to some world news, U.S. and Russian leaders speak at a conference New Delhi, uh, India, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov talked briefly Thursday in the highest-level in-person talks between the two countries since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The short encounter came as relations between Washington and Moscow have plummeted over Russia's war with Ukraine, and tensions have soared amid a myriad of disagreements. U.S. officials said Blinken and Lavrov for about 10 minutes on the sidelines of the G20 Conference of Foreign Ministers in New Delhi. There was no sign of any progress, and the conference itself ended with the group unable to reach consensus on the Ukraine war. Still, with relations at perhaps the lowest point since the Cuban Missile Crisis during the Cold War, the fact that the two men showed that, at least from the moment, lines of communication between Washington and Moscow remain open. And, according to Russia, nuclear powers could clash. This is from Geneva. A senior Russian diplomat warned Thursday that increasing Western support for Ukraine could trigger an open conflict between nuclear powers. Speaking at the U.N. Conference on Disarmament, Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Ryabkov announced denounced the U.S. and its allies for openly declaring the goal of defeating Russia. He emphasized that Russian President Vladimir Putin's move to suspend the 2010 New START Treaty came in response to the U.S. and NATO action in Ukraine. Meanwhile, the Kremlin accused Ukrainian saboteurs Thursday of crossing into western Russia and firing on villages. The Ukraine denied the claim and warned that Moscow could use the allegations to justify stepping up its attacks. And some brief uh, notes under the same uh, national news headline. uh, George Santos, the House Ethics Committee, said Thursday it launched an investigation into embattled Republican Representative George Santos, the New York congressman whose lies and embellishments about his resume and personal life have drawn deep scrutiny in Congress. Pandemic fraud. President Joe Biden's administration asked Congress on Thursday to approve more than $1.6 billion to help clean up the mess of fraud against the massive government COVID-19 pandemic relief programs. The U.S. Secret Service last year recovered $286 million sent out in fraudulently obtained loans. On cybersecurity, a wide-ranging White House cybersecurity plan released Thursday calls for bolstering protections on critical sectors and making software companies legally liable when their products don't meet basic standards. The strategy document promises to use all instruments of national power to preempt cyber attacks. In Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said his allies and his allies on Thursday denounced protesters as anarchists after they massed outside a Tel Aviv salon where his wife was getting her hair done. A chaotic end to a day of demonstrations against the government's plan to overhaul the judiciary. Unemployment news: Applications for jobless claims in the U.S. for this week for the week ending February 25th fell to 190,000 from 192,000 the previous week. The Labor Department said Thursday, it's the seventh straight week claims were under 200,000. And mortgage rates, on mortgage rates, mortgage buyer Freddie Mac reported Thursday that the average on the benchmark 30-year rate rose to 6.6. 5% from 6.5% last week. The average rate a year ago was 3.76%. And SpaceX launches and the US, Russia, UAE astronauts to space station. This is from Associated Press at Cape Canaveral SpaceX launched four astronauts to the International Space Station for NASA on Thursday, including the first person from the Arab world going up for an extended months months long stay. The Falcon rocket bolted from Kennedy Space Center shortly after midnight, illuminating the night sky as it headed up to the East Coast at the, nearly eighty spectators from the United Arab Emirates. Watched from the launch site as astronaut Zultan al Niyadi, only the second Emirati to fly in space, blasted off on his six month mission. Half a world away in Dubai and elsewhere across the UAE, schools and offices broadcast the launch live. Also riding the Dragon capsule that's due at the space station on Friday, NASA's Stephen Bowen, a retired Navy submariner who logged three space shuttle flights, and Warren Woody Hoberg, a former research scientist at Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Space Newbie, and Andre Federev, a space rookie who's retired from the Russian Air Force. Welcome to orbit, SpaceX launch control radioed. Notating, noting liftoff occurred four hours to the day after the capsule's first orbital test flight. If you enjoyed your ride, please don't forget to give us five stars. The first attempt to launch them was called off Monday at the last minute because of a clogged filter in the engine ignition system. It may have taken two times, but it was worth the trip, Bowen said. NASA's NASA's Space Operations Mission Chief Kathy Luters said Thursday's launch enhanced a of night sky already showcasing a conjunction of venus and jupiter the two planets appeared side by side all week seeming to grow even ever closer we added a bright new star to that night by night sky (laughs) excuse me Tonight, she told reporters, the newcomers will be will replace a U.S.-Russian-Japanese crew that has been at the space station since October. The other station residents are two Russians and an American whose six-month stay was doubled until September after their uh, Soyuz capsule sprang a leak. A replacement Soyuz re- re- arrived last weekend. Al-Nayadi, a communications engineer, thanked everyone in Arabic and then English once reaching orbit. Launch was incredible, amazing, he said. He served as a backup for the first Emirati astronaut, Harza al-Mansouri, who rode a Russian rocket to the space station in 2019 for a week-long visit. The oil-rich federation paid for the Al-Nayadi seat on the SpaceX flight. The UAE's Minister for Public Education and Advanced Technology, Sarah Al-Amiri, said the long mission provides us a new venue for science and scientific discovery for the country. We don't want to go just go to space and then not have much to do there or not have impact, said the Director-General at the UAE Space Center in Dubai, Salem al Mari, The Emiratis already have a spacecraft orbiting Mars, and a mini-rover is hitching a ride to the moon on a Japanese lander. Two new UAE astronauts are training with NASA's latest astronaut picks in Houston. Saudi Prince Sultan bin Salman has been the first Arab in space, launching aboard shuttle Discovery in 1985. He was followed two years later by Syrian astronaut Mohammed Faris, launched by Russia. Both were in space for about a week. al Niyadi will be joined this spring by two Saudi astronauts going to the space station on a short private SpaceX flight paid for by their government. It's going to be really exciting, really interesting to have three Arabs in space at once, he said last week. Our region is also thirsty to learn more. And a black Vietnam vet, alas, getting his due, the Medal of Honor. This is according to Associated Press. Nearly 60 years after he was first recommended for the nation's highest award for bravery during the Vietnam War, retired Colonel Paris Davis... One of the first black officers to lead a special forces team in combat will receive the prestigious Medal of Honor on Friday. The overdue recognition for the 83-year-old Virginia resident comes after his recommendation for the medal was lost, resubmitted, and then lost again. It wasn't until 2016, half a century after Davis risked his life to save some of his men by fighting off the North Vietnamese, that a volunteer group of advocates painstakingly recreated and resubmitted the paperwork. Some of Davis's supporters believe racism was to blame, but Davis doesn't dwell on it. He said he doesn't know why it took decades for his heroism to be recognized. He said, right now, I'm overwhelmed. He says it's an interview the day before he attends a White House ceremony where President Joe Biden will hang the blue ribbon holding the Medal of Honor around his neck. He continued, when you're fighting, you're not thinking about this moment. You're just trying to get through that moment. That moment lasted almost 19 hours and stretched over two days in mid-June of 1965. Davis, then a captain and a commander with the 5th Special Forces Group, engaged in nearly continuous combat during a pre-dawn raid on a North Vietnamese Army camp in the village of Bong Son in Binh Dang Province. He led the charge against the enemy, called for precision artillery, fire, engaged in hand-to-hand combat with the North Vietnamese, and thwarted the capture of three American soldiers, all while suffering wounds from gunshots and grenade fragments. Davis used his pinky finger to fire his rifle after his hand was shattered by an enemy grenade, according to reports. And you are listening to the Mason City Globe Gazette, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the blind. All material or heard on iris is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm Bobby Bailey. If you have any comments on this or any any other iris program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. Now we'll turn to today's obituaries. First, we have Stanley Merle Limberg of Woden. Stanley Merle Limberg, 86, of Woden, passed away March 1st at his home with the comfort of his family. Visitation will be held from 2 to 4 p.m. Sunday, March 5th, at the Cataldo Woden Funeral Chapel at 310 Main in Woden. A Visitation will be held one hour prior to the service. Funeral services will be held at 1030 on Monday, March 6th at Wright Christian Reformed Church, at 1730 130th Street in Kanawha, with Rev. Jason Siemens officiating. The funeral will be live-streamed on the Wright Christian Reformed Church's Facebook page. Burial will be in the Woden Christian Reformed Church Cemetery. Online condolences may be left for the family at com. Stanley was born February 17, 1937, to his parents Edward and Esther Meyer Limburg in rural Iowa on the very same farm that he passed away on. After Stanley graduated from Woden High School in 1954, he worked for as a for a carpenter in the Woden area. He then served in the Army National Guard. After his father Edward Limburg passed away in 1960, Stanley took over the family farm in rural Iowa. A couple years later, Stanley Limburg met Ann Langkow uh in Sioux City. They were introduced to each other by Mavis Lindbergh, who was in the same nursing school as Anne. Stanley and Anne were married June 12, 1964 at Woden Christian Reformed Church, where Stanley was baptized, made profession of faith, and served as a deacon and elder for many years. They resided in a rural Woden, where Stanley farmed and Anne worked as a nurse. They went on to have four children, Mark, Tim, Karen, and John. Stanley also raised hogs on the farm. He used his knack knack for genetics to win many county fair livestock shows in the Hancock County area. Stanley enjoyed sports and watching his children play sports in high school. He was an avid fan of St. Louis Cardinals and Iowa Hawkeyes. He worked as an umpire with his partner, Arnold Eden, and later with his son, John Lindberg, officiating local high school baseball and softball. Stanley had a passion for fishing, both recreationally and competitively. He took his family on countless family fishing and boating trips in Minnesota. He enjoyed fishing walleye with his son Mark Limburg and grandson Christopher Limburg on the Missouri River. During those times, Stanley and Mark frequently won local fishing tournaments in South Dakota. Stanley farmed until he was 83 years old. In later years, Stanley was inspired by God and enjoyed serving as a lay minister for Woden Christian Reformed Church and Wright Christian Reformed Church. He also worked as an advocate for the Gideons International. Stanley was predeceased by his parents, Edward and Esther Meyer Limburg, and his brother, Duane Whitey Limburg. He survived by his sister, Cheryl Limburg, and husband, Bernard. Bovenkamp of Linden, Washington, his wife, Ann Lindbergh of Woden, his son, Mark and wife, Carol Lindbergh of Platt, South Dakota, and their children, Christopher and Danielle Limberg of Omaha, his son, Timothy Lindbergh of Sioux Falls, his daughter, Karen Limberg and husband, Brian Boomgarden, and their daughters, daughters, Allison and Marcy Boomgarden of Wellsburg, and his son, John and wife. His son, John, and wife, Mandy Lindbergh, and their children, Amelia and Jake, of Scottsdale, Arizona. Arrangements are with the Cataldo Funeral Home, 160 East 4th Street in Garner, uh, cataldofuneralhome.com. We also have Jean M. Fisher, born August 6, 1921, and she passed away February 22nd. Jean M. Fisher, 101 of Cedar Falls, died on Wednesday, February 22nd, at the Deary Sweets in Western Home in Cedar Falls. She was born August 6, 1921 in Coulter, the daughter of John and Edna Nielsen Hansen. She graduated from Latimer High School. Jean married Charles Bud Fisher July fifteenth at the Nazareth Lutheran Church in Coulter. She worked as a country classic store and owned the Fisher grocery store with her husband Bud from the 50s through the early 60s. She was a member of Nazareth Lutheran Church in Coulter, then St. John Lutheran Church. She was in the Park Society of Latimer, Ladies' Aid Through Church, the American Legion Auxiliary, and the Latimer Golf Club. Jean loved to golf, play bridge, and chicken foot, and visited friends and family. Jean is survived by her son, Charles. And wife Karma Fisher of Waterloo, a daughter Connie and her husband Jim Crawford of Gurney, Illinois, grandsons Nick Fisher and Christian and his wife Sheena Crawford, granddaughters Andrea and husband Marcus uh, Haitley. Crawford and Annika Crawford Gina is preceded in death was preceded in death by her parents her husband Bud a granddaughter Alexandra Crawford and brother and sister-in-law John and Marlis Hansen family memorial a family memorial service will be held at a later date uh, Locke at Tower Park is in charge of arrangements condolences may be left at com. we have some Globe death notices to include as well Mary Harrington, 75, of Mason City, died Thursday, March 2nd, at Mercy One North Iowa Medical Center. Arrangements are with the Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapels in Mason City. And Judy Lavorson, 77, of Northwood, died Wednesday, March 1st, at Mercy One North Iowa Hospice inpatient unit. Arrangements Uh, For Judy, will be at Schott Funeral Home, Middlestead Chapel. And a, a celebrity death. Wayne Shorter, jazz saxophone pioneer, died at 89. This is Los Angeles. Wayne Shorter, an influential jazz innovator whose lyrically composed jazz compositions and pioneering saxophone playing sounded through more than half a century of American music has died. He was 89. Shorter died Thursday, surrounded by his family in Los Angeles, said Elise Kingsley, a representative for the Grammy winner. No cause of death was given. Visionary composer, saxophonist, visual artist, devout Buddhist, Devoted husband, father, and grandfather, Wayne Shorter has embarked on a new journey as part of his extraordinary life, departing the earth as we know it in search of abundance of new challenges and creative possibilities, a statement released by Kingsley said. It called him a gentle spirit who was always inquisitive and constantly exploring. Shorter, a texas A tenor saxophonist made his debut in 1959 and would go on to be a foundational member of two of the most seminal jazz groups, Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers and the Miles Davis Quintet. Over the next eight decades, Shorter's wide-spanning collaborations would include co-founding the 70s fusion band Weather Report, some 10-album appearances with Joni Mitchell, and further exploration with Carlos Santana and Steely Dan. Many of Shorter's textured and elliptical composition, including Speak No Evil, Black Nile, Footprints, and Nerf. Neferiti became modern jazz standards and expanded the harmonic horizons of jazz across some of its most fast evolving eras. Herbie Hancock once said of, of Shorter in Miles Davis' second great quintet, The master writer to me in that group was Wayne Shorter. He still is a master. Wayne was one of the few people who brought Music to Miles that didn't get changed. Hancock praised Shorter for his musical expertise and leaving a special mark on his life. Now we jump over to sports and we have a story about some high school hockey laying the foundation. This is credit to Austin Hanson of the Globe Gazette. The Mason City Mohawks aren't feeling any pressure as they prepare for the Midwest High School Hockey League's season-ending tournament. Mason City is the sixth seed in the eight-team bracket. The Mohawks will take on the third-seeded Omaha Junior Lancers in the first round of the single-elimination event. Mason City and Omaha finished the regular season with 34 and 53 standings points, respectively. We have no pressure, Mason City head coach P.K. O'Handley said. Like the other teams, have some pressure because they're supposed to win. We're just the small-town Mason City guys. We've just got to knock them off. We can do that or not. We'll see. We're definitely going to try. Mason City is one of the two smallest towns to host an MHSL team. MHSHL team. Fremont, Nebraska, which has a population of about twenty eight thousand, also has a squad, but the Flyers placed last in the league and didn't qualify for the twenty twenty three postseason. The Mohawks bested a number of teams from larger markets on their way to the playoffs. Mason City finished ahead of the Cedar Rapids Rough Riders, Quad City Blues, Waterloo Warriors, Ames Cyclones, and Des Moines Capitals. The top three seeds in this year's tournament are from the three largest markets in the MHSHL, Kansas City, Des Moines, and Omaha. You know, we're trying to To grow our program here from the little guys on up, O'Hanley said, but it's going to take some time for numbers and skill to catch up with some of the other markets. But I believe we're laying a foundation that perhaps there's a direction and belief that we can get there. O'Handley's squad spent much of the season in the hunt for the playoffs, teetering between 4th and 8th place. Five of the MHSHL's 13 teams don't receive postseason berths. The Mohawks found a way to make it to the season-end tournament without many theatrics. Mason City finished seven points clear of the ninth-place Blues, a team that missed out in the playoffs by two points. It's extremely prideful, O'Hanley said. You know, I think the group should be extremely prideful. I believe, you know, anything can happen, but I think they feel really good about themselves going into this. They know that our swings were they know that our swings were, at times, large. We'd play really well and then have kind of a stinker. Perhaps we're at a point where maybe we've found a little more consistency. Mason City has played Omaha twice this season and suffered losses both times. The Mohawks played a two-game series against the Junior Lancers and were outscored 9-5. to five. Mason City faced Omaha Just over two weeks ago, the Mohawks are hoping to use their familiarity with the Junior Lancers to their advantage. They have a good team, O'Hanley said. They're fast. They have a big team. Play a physical game. We went over there, and I would say there were moments in both games where our players felt we played well enough to win. But maybe our Achilles heel is that we didn't play long enough with them and for whatever reason got derailed. O'Hanley added the top teams in the MHSHL set themselves apart from the others with top-tier goaltending and the Junior Lancers are no exception. Omaha has let up has let up just over 2 goals per game and registered two shutouts this year. Mason City has put up 3.6 goals per contest this season. Omaha has put up put the puck in the back of the net 135 times in 22 and 23. The Mohawks goalkeepers have struggled at times this year. Chandler Radcliffe and Zane Redfern have a combined 16 and 15 record. Radcliffe is 12 and 4 with a 90 save percentage and Redfern went 4 and 7 blocking 81% of the shots he faced. The Mohawks quarterfinal game against the Lancers will begin at 1:45 p.m. at the Mid-American Energy Re-f- Replex Recplex in Des Moines. With with a win over Omaha, Mason City would play either number two Des Moines or number seven Dubuque in the semifinals at 1:30 p.m. on Saturday. They've earned the right to be in there at the three spot, and we've earned the right to be in the sixth spot. O'Hanley said of Friday's game. So we're going in as the underdog, and rightfully so. But you know, anything can happen now. Hopefully, our guys in good in a good spot, that we have a better understanding of what's needed. And jumping to college basketball, the big Missouri Valley Tournament, big-time Bo leads UNI over Illinois State. Panthers advance to Valley in Valley Tournament. St. Louis, three scoreless stretches lasting over three minutes apiece opened the door for an 11-21 Illinois State comeback as the Redbirds slashed a once-21-point Panther lead down to six points with 7 minutes, 43 seconds remaining in regulation in a Missouri Valley Conference Tournament opener on Thursday. With their season on the line, the 14-7 Panthers respectively needed points to stave off the comeback effort. Bowen, born, delivered. Despite shooting just 5 of 15 from the field to that point, the sophomore guard drilled a three-pointer with 4.17 remaining to cries of big time bow from Panther Sports Network's J. W. Cox. The shot ended a ten to two run by Illinois State. Bourne said the Panthers knew the Redbirds were not would not Give up despite UNI's 20-point halftime lead. I went through a stretch there in the second half where they were doing a really good job of guarding us, Bourne said. With any team down here, it's going to be a dogfight. That was something knowing, talking about it in the, in the huddles. Just settle in. Bourne did not wait long to provide an encore as he hit a clutch step back three pointer to swell UNI's lead back to twelve points, with just under three minutes left in regulation. The Panzer the Panthers rode Road momentum of their stars' late game heroics and their own tenacious defense to a 13.75-62 win over the redbirds, according to Bourne, he was just playing confident in spite of his early shooting woes and taking what the defense gave him. UNI and I head coach Ben Jacobi- Jacobson said, following the win that Bourne, who has led the ga- who led the game with twenty three points earned the confidence he played with at the end of the UNI's win. Jacoby said his demeanor and confidence does not change because he has earned it. He knows what he has done every day. He knows what he has done in terms of the work that he has put in. He does not need to worry about it. Make shot, miss shot, it does not matter close quote as Bourne sparked the Panthers offense late, you and I also managed to hold Illinois State to just seven points in the final seven minutes of the contest. We talked about the more aggressive team in going is going to to win the team that gets the most stops, sophomore guard Michael Dua said they're going to go on runs. it's just about getting stops. We put an end to their run and said now it's our turn. According to Jacobson, the youthful Panthers developed the ability to halt the Redbirds run during during non-conference play. In November and December, we played a lot of good basketball and we did not win many of the games, Jacobson said, mostly to do with learning how to make plays that stop a run, plays that mostly refers to the game-winning type of plays. For us, we had to learn how to do it throughout the course of the 40 minutes." For as close as things ended up down the stretch, the Panthers rolled on in the first half, getting out to a strong start, which Jacobson described as important due to the Panthers' relative youth. You and I connected on six of 16 three-point attempts and got double-digit scoring efforts from both Duax and Titan Anderson. Freshman guard Trey Campbell also provided a vital scoring punch with all five of his first-half points coming in the span of 1 minute and 6 seconds as he kept the score tied 14-14 with 11.57 left in the first half. The Panthers surged ahead with a 12-2 run, which lasted three minutes to take a 28-18 lead with 7.28 to go before halftime. UNI outscored Illinois State 16-10 to to close out the first half with a 16-point advantage. Jacobson described the first half as a mel- melding of the right execution on the defense and with the strong offensive play displayed by the Panthers in the final two weeks of the season. In the first half, we played both ends as well as we as. We have for a while, Jacobson said. Offensively, we've been good at the last six, seven, eight ball games. Our offense has been pretty good and probably good enough to win most of those games. But our defense has not been as sharp. Uh, I thought... Thought the last 12 minutes of the first half defensively, that was the game for us. Duax finished with 19 points while Anderson put up 16. Campbell found the bottom of the net just once in the second half, scoring seven points on the night, but dished five assists in the final 20 minutes of action. With the win, the Panthers advance to the quarterfinals of Arch Madness MVC Tournament. UNI takes on Bradley at noon on Friday with coverage provided by Valley Sports Midwest and the Panther Sports Network. The Panthers went 0-2 in the regular season against the top-seeded Braves, losing 68-53 on the road in Peoria and 77-69 at home. And in women's college basketball news, uh, Cisnano welcomes return to home Iowa City. For Monica Cisnano, who Who uh, The road to the Big Ten Tournament Championship follows a familiar path. The tournament's moved to Minneapolis, and the Target Center gives the Iowa Post player one last opportunity to play college basketball near her hometown of Watertown, Minnesota, a 35-minute drive from where the second-seeded Hawkeyes hope to be cutting down the championship nets for a second straight year on Sunday. It's really special to me to have that chance in Minneapolis, just being able to get back to my home state and stuff like that, Sinazo said. Siznano Ciznano it's hard to say the four-time first team all big Ten selection understands though, that this is strictly a business trip. The objectives for the Hawkeyes will be to repeat a feat they accomplished a year ago, winning three games in three days. Siznano said the first step is not getting ahead of yourself, especially this year with five big ten teams ranked in the top the top. Seventeen in this week's Associated Press college women's basketball poll for Iowa, that means putting this twenty three six regular season in the rear view mirror and keeping the focus on Friday's five thirty game quarterfinal matchup against the winner of Thursday game between Purdue and Wisconsin. You kind of have to flip a switch when tournament time comes, says said. The regular season doesn't really matter anymore as fun as it was, we have the twenty four hour rule. For the Hawkeyes, that means taking time earlier in, in the week in Week 2, savor Sunday's buzzer-beating 86-85 win over top-seeded Indiana and then getting ready for the next game. Iowa last saw Purdue on December 29th, winning an 83-68 game at Carver-Hawkeye. The Hawkeyes own a pair of lopsided wins over Wisconsin, beating the Badgers by 31 on the road and 30 at home. But, as Cisnano points out, puts it, the only thing that matters— is now being ready to work the weekend in the Twin Cities. It's really a competitive, excuse me, really competitive three-day or however long you're here, stretch, just mentally getting as ready as you can, she said. At this point, everyone knows your play calls. You know other players by name, basically, on a scout. It's truly a grind, but it's so much fun. Cisnano speaks from experience. She's the only player on the current Hawkeye roster who's, Who took the court for Iowa when it made a run to the Elite Eight of the 2019 NCAA tournament? Kate Martin was on the team at that time, but was redshirting as as she worked her way back from preseason ACL surgery. Iowa coach Lisa Bluter appreciates the opportunity that awaits Cisnano and the rest of the players at a program in a program that has played in the Big Ten tourney title game three times the last four seasons. What a dream to have the Big Ten championship in your backyard and have the opportunity to play for a championship there it would be like a dream for her to win it there bluter said it would really be special Cisnano averages 17.2 points and 6.5 rebounds this season and her 66.5 percent shootings percentage currently ranks fourth nationally the fourth straight season she's ranked in the top five in that category she will conclude her career uh, third on iowa's all-time scoring list trailing only her pre- predecessor in the post, Megan Gustafson and Caitlin Clark. She enters the Big Ten tournament with 2,261 career points. Equally important, Cisnano appreciates how the game has evolved during her time in an Iowa uniform. I feel lucky to play through arguably the most influential time in women's basketball from when I started in college until now. The growth has been absolutely unreal. To be able to end and leave this program in a place where I know it's in great hands and that growth that's happening on a national level—that's no, that's so special to me. A strong postseason run, beginning with the quality play and the talent-rich Big Ten tourney, would make it even more special for Zanano just knowing our group has been there we've been in the championship and won and we've been in the championship and lost and we've made it four day runs and three day runs it puts it in a it puts us in a good position says nano says we just have, to have so much experience in this situation i'm really excited to go up there And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette. I'm Bobby Bailey. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.